0: Uh, I gotta confess this morning that I need a lot of grace. Um, and not for all the usual reasons. <laughs> I need a lot of grace this morning because I'm talking about things that I know little to nothing about. And uh, so it's a kind of an awkward position that uh, I stand in. I feel this way most days that I preach, to be honest. Uh, speaking about things of which I know little to nothing. And so we're going to start with a prayer this morning. I don't know what your experience of... Uh, Walking through scriptures and the Holy Spirit has been like, uh, but it's one thing to be able to wrestle with, oh, this is what's written there, and here's all the possible things it could mean, and it's a whole nother ball game to say, this is the Spirit. And so I need a lot of grace today. Let's pray, Father. I, uh, not I, we we come before you, God, and I think in our saner moments we would acknowledge that we don't have you all figured out and that we have room to grow and to learn um, about you and just to know you. And so I pray, Father, this morning that uh, you'd grant us all some grace, a lot of grace that we might see you and experience you in our midst. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to be in John 14 today, if you want to put your finger there. We're probably not going to get there for a few minutes yet, but if you want to start turning that direction, certainly welcome to. John chapter 14. Uh, parting ways can be difficult. And you know, especially after you spend time together, with people that you love and you enjoy it can be painful. I, I get that there's some people, when they go, you're thankful. Whew. Man, I am so ready for a break from them and from that. I'm looking at you, Ryan. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's those people in your life. I get that. We're not talking about those people today. It's the people that you love being with, that you look forward to spending time to, and you don't want that time to end. As a matter of fact, some of these partings can even be disorienting. I think about holidays with family. My my biological clock is wired to the academic uh, calendar. It's kind of like from September to December, and you know, sometime in January. Uh, till about may my body just does things like in december. I start getting anxiety About papers. I don't have to write anymore and tests. I don't have to take But i've spent so many years in some sort of formal academic system That's just kind of the way my body is but one of the things I really loved is coming home at christmas Love coming home at christmas and all those of you who are still in school. I don't know Uh cherish your christmases because it's not the way it works in the real world You don't get four weeks apparently who knew? um and so I loved coming home, and, and all the exams are done, and the stress is behind you, and you get to just spend time with family. We'd stay up late visiting, and we'd uh, get up late, because we were up late the night before, and we'd spend lots of time eating with each other, and playing games, and chatting, and doing things, and just being together. It was awesome, and I loved it. But inevitably, there comes that day when I need to get back in the car, and drive back to school. That's painful. Or get back on the plane and fly back to school. That's difficult. And there's an emptiness and there's a lot. And that a loss and that parting can be very difficult. Even disorienting. I remember a few years ago there was a youth rally. Uh, Okay, it was a lot of years ago. There was a youth rally here. When I was in high school. And I don't know what it was about this particular... I couldn't tell you what was said there. I don't remember the theme. I hardly remember the people, to be perfectly honest. But I remember this profound sense of loss as I stood in the parking lot. And, you know, we'd been together. We were worshiping. We'd been listening to sermons. We've been studying scripture. We've been serving. We've been doing... We're just together all weekend long. And I remember this profound sense of loss on uh, the Sunday afternoon as... I'm pretty sure it was the folks heading back towards Victoria. Uh, they all piled into their Greyhound bus... And they left. And the parking lot was empty. And I was empty. And I just, there was just this, uh, like, emptiness. It was just, it was this loss. It was this void in my life. I cried. I don't know why I, I like I said, I can't even remember the people. <laughs> but I just remember feeling this loss. And that, that separation was painful. It was difficult for me. But I think that we'd acknowledge there's lots of different kinds of parting. You know, some of them. Uh, Don't really seem to have much of a point, but others of them are very pregnant with purpose and with possibility like the end of a semester is one kind of parting and I say bye to my classmates, but it's just so I can get ready for the next one. But the parting that we experience at graduation. Is different here is a parting with purpose. It's pregnant with possibilities. There's an open-ended book yet to be written. There's careers to be started. There are jobs not yet created (laughs) that we're going to go out and make. There are new people to meet. There are goals to achieve. There's a life. There's everything after graduation. The end of the weekend is one kind of parting. We kind of mourn the days of rest that we've just had. So that we can go to work the next day. Seems kind of senseless. But the end of a career... The entry into retirement is very different. It's pregnant with possibilities. It's an open-ended book yet to be written. Yeah, there's a loss. Yeah, you're torn. You leave behind people that you've spent significant fractions of your life with doing whatever it is that you loved to do or put up with doing uh, to pay the bills. You spend lots of time with them and there's probably a sense of loss as you leave them behind. But the future, oh, the future, there's possibilities. And so this parting is not without purpose, but there's, oppor- there's a whole world in front of you. What do I get to do now with my time that it's my time? There's different kinds of parting. We're wired for relationships, though. So when we're faced with parting to begin a new chapter of our life, it's painful. That's no surprise. So I think we can get some idea of how difficult it was then for Jesus' disciples to wrap their minds and their hearts around his parting. You know, in John 13 to 17, Jesus is at the table with them. He is celebrating his last meal with them. He's imparting to them his final words. And Jesus says this, One of you is going to betray me. I can almost hear them snicker. <laughs> One of us? What? No way. But Jesus is serious. And they catch the hint. They're like, hey you, disciple that he loves, ask him who he's talking about. And so he does... And Jesus says, it's the one I will give this piece of bread to. But they don't quite, it's painful, it's disorienting. I'm going to leave you soon and you can't follow me, Jesus says. So where are you going? The disciples ask, "Uh, you can't follow me now, Jesus says. Well, if we don't know where you're going, how can we follow you? I mean, they're just not quite getting it. Jesus says, if you really knew me, you'd know the father. Well, then, show us the Father. The disciples say, "If you've seen me, you've seen him." Jesus says, and they're just—you can—you can hear all the gears turning and grinding and shifting gears, and they're just trying to wrap their minds and their hearts around what is Jesus saying. The questions that they ask, but where are you going to the Father? Yeah, yeah, but where are you going to the Father? Uh, so, how do we get there? You can't follow yet, but you will later. Uh, just, just show us the. Can you hear the frustration? they are not quite getting it. As they sit with Jesus and he's telling them things that he's not told them before, they're wrestling with it. And to be fair, it's not like Jesus was speaking completely clearly to them. I don't know when the last time was that you read through John. Uh, Jesus is a bit long winded, as it's recorded in John, a bit convoluted. It's like, didn't I just read that? And then you skip back two verses and you read, oh, yeah, okay, I did just read that. It's just he's saying it again. But they'd seen some pretty crazy things with Jesus. He turned water to wine. This isn't me turning water into iced tea for my kids. He changes the molecular structure of water into wine. He cleared out the temple and he lived to tell about it. He had healed a royal official's son without ever going to see the son or talk to the son or diagnose the son. He heals that son to a man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. Jesus said, get up, take your mat and walk. And the disciples saw it to a crowd that followed him to remote places, hungry for the word of God. He gave bread and fish in abundance in a boat in the middle of a stormy sea. The disciples are struggling and Jesus walks right out on the water, walks on the water. He doesn't doggy paddle. He walks on the water right out to them. To a man that was blind from birth, Jesus made him see again. To a man who is dead for three days and supposed to be rotting, stinking flesh in a tomb, Jesus says, Come back to life. And the man walked. The disciples had seen this stuff. And now he's saying, But I'm going to be gone. They had seen some crazy and amazing things with Jesus. And now he's speaking about leaving them, about disappearing for a while. They found it difficult to accept that he'd be leaving them. And I can understand it. But it's not just Jesus' disciples who are grieved. I want to invite you to hear this story on a couple levels. There are the disciples sitting with Jesus at the table, listening to his words. But there is the community that received the gospel of John long before we did. Who is also hearing these words? They're probably wondering, as fellow disciples of Jesus, what exactly Jesus is talking about. It's those who know Jesus, or sorry, who came to know Jesus from the disciples that are also grieved. It's us who have come to know about Jesus and know Jesus through disciples of disciples. Who are grieved when Jesus departs? We start to wonder how can we know what the real Jesus is like if he's not with us? If I can't hear his voice and his inflection and learn his mannerisms, if I can't know what he looks like, what he feels like, how can I really know Jesus? I mean, it's almost like that is one of the questions that is driving this community. Are we actually just second-class Christians following an idea and not a real living person? And it was a real question for them because their lives were on the line. We get a couple hints out of John. John chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. This is where Jesus has healed the blind man. And so the Pharisees, of course, because something good has been done, are starting to investigate and and stamp that out. (laughs) And so they come to the man's parents and they say, so how was he healed? And this is their response. It's very telling. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. And John adds this really interesting note. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he is of age. Ask him. It's a really interesting note that we don't find in the other gospels, which tells me there was something about the community that received the gospel of John. They were wondering, they were thinking, hmm, here's home. And if I say yes to Jesus, I'm going to get kicked out. Jesus will say in John chapter 16, All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Jesus' own words warn the disciples and tell the disciples about this persecution. What we have to remember is that for the first little while, Christians weren't totally separate and apart in a major world religion. They were another sect of Judaism. There was an awful lot of different kinds of Jews. There were Pharisees, and there were Sadducees, and there was Herodians. And there was these little, you know, Messianic Jews, the ones that followed Christ. But it became increasingly apparent as they spent more time living within the comfortable home of Judaism that they were not any longer Jews that could hold to the old ways. They followed a risen Lord. The Messiah had come. The prophecies had already been fulfilled. They couldn't exist in that home anymore. And it becomes apparent from at least these two texts in John that by the end of the first century, these very early Christians were already being kicked out of the synagogue. They were already being persecuted for following Jesus. And so they start to wonder, you know, the guy that you told us about who like raised the dead? We're not seeing that as much anymore. You know that guy who fed all those people? We're kind of being persecuted. We're being run away from the comfortable place that we had. and You know, I always thought to myself, maybe kind of like they would have, if I could just walk and talk with Jesus in the flesh, my faith would never waver. You know, if I could just shake his hand and follow him around for a day, I'd never abandon him. If I could just see one miracle, just one, I mean, you could pick the, the smallest. If, if that was it, my faith would be rock solid. Failing, of course, to account for the 12 who followed him for years and saw all the miracles and whose faith wavered in my less humble moments. I've thought if I walked with Jesus the way the disciples did, I never would have denied him. I never would have run away. I never would have abandoned him. I never would have lost faith. But of course, I don't see Jesus like that. That Jesus has died, he's been raised, he's gone to heaven. He's left this earth and his followers behind. And that kind of intimacy and knowledge of Jesus is impossible. And so like those first century Christians were grieved at the parting. And this is where the good news of John 14 comes in. If you're not already there, let's take a look. Picking up in verse 15, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, Jesus says, You will obey what I command and I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you uh, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live on that day. You will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, we've got to pay attention here in John because he's not talking about the same Holy Spirit that we've talked about the whole uh, year. I mean, he is, but he's using different language to do it. Paul, or Paul John uses a very unique word, paraclete. Paraclete, to talk about the Spirit. As a matter of fact, it only shows up in John four times in the Gospel of John and once in the letters that John writes. It's a word that has a lot of different shades of meaning. It's it's very rich. It could be translated and has been in any number of the following ways. Comforter, Counselor, Helper, Intercessor, Revealer, Spokesman, Interpreter, Mediator, Teacher, Fortifier champion. I mean, take your pick. It's a word with a ton of different possibilities. Most descriptions of the term refer to someone either metaphorically or literally coming to another side as a support. It's the crowd of friends who show up to support you at your trial. It's the crowd of witnesses who appear with you on your side before town hall to plead your case. It's the crowd of supporters who come with you to the head honcho, to woo the head honcho's favor. Maybe that's your boss. Maybe it's the emperor. Maybe it's the committee lead. That's the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to support. And so I think it's really important that we pay attention to what exactly does John say about the paraclete. Chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Another counselor. It is not a subpar second rate third string substitution for Jesus it is another paraclete like Jesus and so to these people who are saying but I didn't know the real Jesus my faith can never be as strong as those folks who really knew him I can never know Jesus the way that you knew Jesus Jesus is saying I will send another counselor another count I'm the first and there's another one coming perhaps even better Perhaps even better, because Jesus was limited by the physical body. There are so only so many people one person can be with at a time. Only so many people that one person can connect with. But the paraclete, not bound by a body, can dwell in and among all disciples. Chapter 14 and verse 16 carries on and says, He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Jesus does not say that he will be sending the paraclete to you individually. Jordan, I'm sorry. Not for you. Or are you, Kevin. Or Kelly. Ryan. But he does say, I'm sending the paraclete to y'all. See, we miss it in English because we don't distinguish between you and you. It sounds kind of the same. But Texas, I'm thanking Miles this morning. Y'all, the paraclete is sent to dwell among y'all your experience of Jesus, as a matter of fact, is incomplete if you're trying to do it alone. When it's another paraclete, just like Jesus, is going to do the same kind of things that Jesus did, like drawing together a community and shaping a community and teaching a community about the kingdom of God. So the paraclete dwells within a community, drawing them together and shaping them and strengthening them for the journey. I think it's important that we remember the Spirit is not just within you. It is within you. <laughs> and finally, chapter 14, verse 26, one more important thing we need to know about the paraclete. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The paraclete does not act independently of Jesus or the Father, but is sent from the Father at the request of the Son to represent their mission. I think this is crucial, absolutely crucial for us to get. I don't know about your upbringing uh, and in learning about God and how your journey has unfolded, but for me it's been very rational. I've spent a lot of time um, thinking about and articulating about God, and it makes me really uncomfortable to think about um, uh, just being and to be learning from something that's not written text on a page. It, it makes me uncomfortable. I struggle with it. So it is incredibly comforting to me to know that the paraclete that Jesus sends is not one that is going to do something inconsistent with the Father and the Son. The Son does and says only what the Father does and says. The paraclete does and says only what the Son says and does. And so they're all connected. If you want to think about it in terms of theater, the paraclete is the act two. Which does not and cannot exist without the act one that is Jesus' ministry. They act in consort and they act together. And this gives me a lot of freedom. I don't know about you. This gives me a lot of freedom to open myself up to the experience of the paraclete that lives within us. And so it seems to me that the paradigm here is intimacy, it's not competence. It's not skill, it's not degrees, it's not knowledge, but intimacy. It is spending time with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I think about my kids. I could write you a paper on my kids. I could get into the books and I could describe for you where they're at physiologically and tell you about all the things that are going on, and identify using case studies what's actually happening in their life. I could give you anecdotes that'd even be entertaining. Um, I could talk to you about socially where they're at, developmentally. I could tell you about the kind of friends they make, and the mistakes they make along the way, and I could give you my diagnosis for how they ought to live differently if they were to encounter the same situation again. I could even pull out a scale that measures their spiritual development, and I could write you a paper. I could write you volumes... But I wouldn't know my kids. Do you know how I know my kids? It's when I sit down on the couch and I get in my lap and I hold them. There's no words, there's no talking, there's no activity. We just are together. My wife and I go through cycles of time together and time apart. And I think that when we're at our best, we can just be together. No phones, no talking, no agenda, just being and knowing and understanding. Intimacy is something that can't be forced. And so it's fascinating to me that when the disciples hit their aha moment, it is not because they've gone to a sermon seminar It's not because they've gone to a lectureship and it's not because they've taken an online course. It's not even because Jesus has started talking more clearly, although they'll claim that. (laughs) Take a look at the end of chapter 16, if you'd like. We're going to pick up in verse 29. It says, then Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things, that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. I don't buy it. Because Jesus has been talking in the exact same way that he's been talking all the way he has through John. He's not speaking anymore, clearly. You know what's changed? They've been with him. They've been with him. Jesus' disciples hung out. They've been saying all along, we don't understand what you're saying. What do you mean we can't follow you? What do you mean? Where are you going? You can't tell us. Well, just show us the Father then. what? I don't get it. And Jesus says, you're going to be sad because I'm going to the Father, but I will see you again after that. And and then you'll have the same relationship that the Father and I do because the Father loves you. And here they go, oh, I get it. And it's not because Jesus was more eloquent. It's because they'd been with him. And eventually... They got it when you go away to college and you leave all your friends behind and then you come back and your family for that matter and you come back you're not different because you've been given different textbooks only you're not different because you're studying different subject matter you're different because you're with different people and when we spend time together it rubs off they talk differently they act differently they have different interests and you interact with them differently we go to college and we hang out with these people. And we come back to our families and they go, who are you? And you're like, well, I'm the same guy that left four months ago. And they're like, No, you're not. Because you've been spending time with different people. And so I think it makes sense if intimacy is the paradigm that we should be intentional about forming small communities in which to pay attention to the paraclete, to experience the love and the grace and the mercy of God our Father and Jesus our Lord. Jesus did that. He got folks together to teach them to pay attention. To show them the grace and the mercy of God our Father and Jesus our Lord. But it makes no sense at all if we in our life groups hang on and 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 hang on on to one another without a view of the cross before us and the world around us. Can you imagine? Can you imagine If Jesus had simply rested comfortable in his life group that he had formed in his now resurrected and immortal body, that group would have gone on for a long time. Can you imagine? And he just continued to feed them and nurture them and fellowship with them, but never released them to share the ministry with the world. Where would we be? Can you imagine how impoverished... We would be. Jesus believes so completely in sharing the Father's goodness that he refuses such a self-centered, circle the wagons, don't rock the boat approach. He doesn't say, I'm going away and it's inevitable. He says, I have to go. Because if I don't go, this thing dies. And it's too important. I'm out so that you can go. When I go, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm sending the paraclete. I'm still going to be with you. But I have to go. And so do you, Jesus will say. I've tried to uh, multiply or branch or make more of life groups on at least two occasions now. And it has always ended very poorly. I tell my group, guys, we're here for more than just our enjoyment. And we have to become more than one group. And you know what happens? People stop coming kills me just kills me because what we're about is feeding each other and not doing what jesus sent the paraclete to do jesus prepares his disciples for the mission by modeling it telling them what will come and then releasing them for the ministry where would our city be if it weren't for people like peter and chelsea juan and ali who have lived in our midst Who launch out from their comfortable, known church family because they have to. They have to. What would our city be like if they didn't do that to take the paraclete into a dark and broken world? Parting is painful, it hurts like crazy. It can be disorienting. But with purpose and with intention, with the paraclete, it is life-giving, it is world-redeeming because we are not alone. The very presence of Christ, the paraclete, dwells among us, teaching us, reminding us, guiding us, being with us. This morning I have not prepared a reflective question for you. I invite you to spend a minute Being, being with God.